I'm Vicki Lawson. And I'm Sarah Elwood. We're the co-directors of the Relational Poverty Network, which is a collaboration among over 500 scholar activists and educators working on questions of impoverishment in the broadest sense. The network convenes conversations amongst people working in very different places around the globe in order to trouble taken for granted ideas about who is poor and why. And this podcast, titled New Poverty Politics for Changing Times, brings you a series of conversations between poverty scholars, activists, and educators. They think about how to keep questions of poverty and inequality front and center at a time when poverty is not part of the national conversation nearly enough. A foundational premise of the work is that poverty is always produced in relation to privilege and produced through multiple intersecting injustices. It's our hope that these conversations prompt you to think hard about questions of impoverishment and to collaborate with people who are working hard on these issues. Thanks for listening. Executive Director of the Transgender, Gender Variant, and Intersex Justice Project, and Jenny Friedenbach, the Executive Director of the San Francisco Coalition on Homelessness. We're working together on a community-based housing and services needs assessment, and we hope that our research will encourage local policymakers to direct resources to an evidence-based approach that meets the needs of unhoused people. San Francisco, like other U.S. cities, is in the grip of a housing crisis. The highest rents in the country, combined with policies that favor corporations and developers, have contributed to mass housing deprivation in our city. Last year, the Our City, Our Home Coalition ran a successful grassroots campaign to institute a local tax on large corporations in order to fund housing and services for unhoused San Franciscans. This new tax is expected to take effect soon and will generate millions of dollars. We'll talk today about this landmark legislation and how listeners can support the leadership of unhoused people, especially trans women of color, in the fight for housing justice. Before we start, I'd like each of you to introduce yourselves and your organizations. Um, Jenny, let's start with you. Can you tell us about the Coalition on Homelessness and the Our City, Our Home campaign? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So the Coalition on Homelessness is about a 32-year-old organization, and we started with a group of homeless folks and frontline service providers who are really tired of a response that focused on an emergency response to homelessness and not looking at the structural causes and the lack of inclusion of people with lived experience with homelessness in the, in, in the creation of solutions. So we do just that. We, we fight for permanent solutions to homelessness that um, come directly from folks' experience with homelessness and we fight to protect the human and civil rights of people who are forced to remain on the streets. We do that with a lot of outreach to folks, get their ideas on what they want us to work on. We have these open work group meetings and then we use a whole bunch of tactics to try to get there. Everything from lawsuits to legislation to protests to um, media to uh, you know basically anything possible that'll work, uh, we try it. And um, I think we've been relatively successful. We've been 
responsible for thousands of units of housing, a mass expansion of treatment, a lot of prevention efforts to keep people in their homes. But obviously we got a long way to go because of gentrification and the internal displacement that San Francisco is facing. We've seen, um, despite our efforts, a massive increase in the number of people experiencing homelessness. Thanks. Um, and Janetta, can you tell us about TGIJP and your housing advocacy for formerly incarcerated trans women? Yes, um, I'm Janetta Johnson. I'm the executive director here at TGIJP, which stands for Transgender Gender Variant um, Intersex Justice Project. And we're an organization that's um, led by formerly incarcerated black trans people, um, we provide leadership development opportunities, but we have also been challenged housing, particularly Black trans women formerly incarcerated, just trans people in general, because of the prejudice and the discrimination that a lot of people experience in um, today's society, not to mention particularly here in San Francisco, the um, housing is so unaffordable right now and trans people experience a lot of discrimination and one of the things about it is that um a lot of trans people are have been chronically without housing and particularly if someone has an eviction on their record you get locked out of the system of housing for seven years and that is a huge barrier that a lot of the trans community experience because of uh, <clears throat> lack of um, um, advocacy services, as it particularly specifically pertaining to formerly incarcerated people uh, and um, trans people, spe especially black trans women. Mm -hmm. It's just so difficult to house people. Yeah, so people getting kicked out more because of the way that providers are kind of policing their race and gender identities. Right. And a lot of people don't feel like they, like a lot of um, housing owners are people that have space to rent, they feel like trans people don't fit the aesthetics of what they would like to have in their building. And it's all just um, like this huge why would I rent to you when I can get so much more if I rent to somebody else right, from right. tech or wherever? So those are some of the other challenges that you face. Um, you remember when they, um, when um, Twitter came and they started renovating all these hotels and they, st they started coming out with cash and calling people to the basements with stacks of cash and saying, I'll give you $5,000 to move out. A lot of the hotels were doing that. Did you know that? Yeah. They were coming out with, and you tell an addict that has never seen that much money, or a person that, you know, and that's how that increased the homeless experience because even with $5,000, it's hard to find housing. survey found that one out of five transgender people in the U.S. has been without housing. 
and the San Francisco Mayor's Office estimates that trans people in San Francisco are 18 times more likely to experience homelessness than cisgender people. What are some of the specific ways that transgender women become vulnerable when they're deprived of safe housing? And what have you seen as the executive director of TGIJP um, trans women going through when they're trying to access housing and services here in San Francisco? Um, well, it's been very difficult. And our experience is that a lot of landlords, even, even for our organization, who is a transgender, gender variant, intersex justice project. It's like we go look at a building to move into it. That landlord is very interested. They've met with nonprofits before, but when they find out our name is transgender, gender variant, intersex justice project, the whole conversation changes and they're no longer running to nonprofits. And, you know, and that's been our repeated experience and I can't help believe but if we were the John and Susan Smith program that we would find housing like a lot easier than being the transgender gender variant intersex justice project and the transgender part and the justice part just really like sends people uh, in the wrong way and also just going to different hotels and trying to get monthly rates for our members or trying to pay for X amount of days for the, a lot of our members to be housed in a hotel, uh, specifically around the fact that it's been so many murders that's happened within this year of black trans women. We've been doing the best that we can house people and it's been very challenging because they always end up like chasing them out and putting them out. And mainly because, once again, they don't fit the aesthetics of how they feel like they want their, like, their physical appearance is not suitable to the um, hotels. Um, and it's just been really, really hard because um, there's so much transphobia that's um, spread wide in this city that um, it's made our job hella hard. We've exhausted our budget paying for hotel rooms and we specifically cannot house people in a lot of the hotels. The hotels that will house trans people is the hotels that are drug infested. Yeah. And just to add to that, in terms of the experience for folks out on the streets, uh, women, I mean, everybody's vulnerable out there, right? Yeah. Because you don't have a door to lock. Right. I mean, you think about that. I mean, it's just like a door to lock. You don't have that uh you are susceptible to whatever nastiness is going around looking for um you know so you know for women in terms of sexual assault and then um for trans women in particular then you have this other layer where you have homophobia transphobia so if someone's you know i mean it happens all the time people come into san francisco looking around for people to beat up right and coming from a hateful spot well if you got a door to lock, you don't have to worry as much about that. I mean, maybe you get caught outdoors, but if you're always outdoors, yeah. then you're going to be the first person who's going to be the victim of that. So we constantly see it. Like, we constantly see people sleeping and getting attacked while they're sleeping, which is a very vulnerable place to be in. Um, and, you know, it's very hard to jump up and defend yourself if you're going from a heavy sleep back up, too. So that's, that's really difficult. And I think... Um, you know, the shelters, of course, we have over a thousand people on the wait list for shelter. Um, we have a disproportionately small 
number of shelters for um, for women. Um, and then those shelters are congregate setting. And so any of the uh, transphobia that is available you know, anywhere in the U.S. is also going to be in that congregate setting. So it's really, it can be very, very difficult situation for folks to go into a room crowded with a bunch of strangers, uh, many of whom are uh, are transphobic, and they're just going to give you shit. They're going to give you shit in the shower. They're going to make you feel unsafe. They're going to, people are going to try to fight you. I mean, there's just like all this stuff that happens. So it's it's really, um, it's, it, it's it's really a struggle because, you know, homelessness is where all these different oppressions intersect. And if we're talking about, you know, African-Americans, women, trans, all of that at once and being homeless, it's just explosive in terms of what people have to face. Yeah, I had a conversation with some other trans women that are homeless and it's to the point where they don't fill out applications for housing. Like you you're trying to organize them and get them to fill out housing applications and get on waiting lists and they're like, I can't do that anymore. They can't they can't do it anymore. They're like, you know, every time you go and you think and hope and you hope your name get on a list. Right. And, you know, they call the lottery and nobody even looks like you got into the lottery and it's just it's just a huge disappointment that they don't want to continue to experience so they've accepted the um, the um, they've accepted the fact that they've been pushed out into homelessness and they're comfortable getting a tent, opposed to continuing to jump to these systems and hope they get a house get housing. But um, I think the most frightening experience, which is not it hasn't been a quick, good six months, when one of the black trans women shared with me that. Throughout her experience that night, she had been sexually assaulted and taken advantage of three times in one night and didn't have nowhere to go and come to work in the morning and that person is there and, you know, um, <clears throat> they wouldn't dare call the police. Can you imagine the scrutiny that they would experience with the police? And it's just like, it just really, really breaks my heart to know, you know, and I, I mean, I know some of that, and I know some of that from my past when I used to do sex work 25 years ago. Um, but this girl is not doing sex work, you know what I'm saying? She's just surviving through the night. Yeah. And, um, and just to know that those are the things that people is experiencing throughout the night and um, the concerns of them accessing shelter. It's sort of kind of like those experiences happen as well within the shelter system because generally even if they're on the female side some guys fixate on them not to mention the violence that they experience from cisgender women and the lack of acceptance and understanding um but um some guys fixate on them yeah. and every time they get ready to leave for breakfast i go and do this go doing that somebody's on the other side on the male side that are right there following behind them on their tail trying to get right. them to go out and make money so that they can get high it's just a a vicious cycle and a circle of trauma and i often say that a lot of our communities suffer from a seemingly hopeless state of body and mind like they feel like nothing is going to ever happen for them in their life like they don't have an idea i mean even sometimes in our 
travels when we go to different convenings and stuff like that are out of town and out of state and them staying in like a a, a three-star hotel and they're like so excited like they're in a five-star and it's just so disappointing that the way the system has made people see um to have this belief system that they can't accomplish and they can't achieve and they can't do all these things and that's from being chronically homeless. It's just yeah, it just it just <clears throat> it just chips away at everything. I mean, it's just we're, we're as human beings, we're not meant to live outside. Mm-hmm. You know, we we just we naturally nest. I mean, it's like that's just how we are, and uh, we try to. I think a lot of times we don't think of ourselves as in that way, but. It's so real. And when that's taken away, that in and of itself is incredibly traumatizing. And so you, you know, you try to, you know, try to make a space for yourself and try to live within what you're going to live within and make the best of it. And in that process, hopelessness ends up entering into that because you're trying to make best of something that you really shouldn't have to be making best of. Yeah. And so you almost have to kind of tell yourself, like, I'm choosing to be here or this is my thing. But when you dig down deep, you actually don't have any other choices. Yeah. I mean, there's 6,000 people in front of you waiting for housing. There's, yeah. you know, I mean, there's just not that there. And so that that's really, I think, um, part of also the dehumanization that we have of homeless people, the way mm-hmm. that folks without housing are talked about, the way that they're treated as they walk down the street, um, the way that they're vilified in the media on a constant basis compared to trash. Um, All of this ends up just kind of just chipping away at people's um, sense of self. and, um, And then, you know, despair sets in in these really deep ways and has so many other effects, whether it's, you know, severe addictive disorders or, um, uh, ha- connecting with people you never would have otherwise mm-hmm. um, just for some semblance of safety and stability that you know mistreatment and you know all this stuff happening from that so there's just there's a lot of layers to it but you know really in the end we need to make sure every human has a safe and decent place to call home and yeah. it would avoid a whole lot of other stuff yeah yeah and particularly in the city of San Francisco, an investment of money and resources um, in policing as a primary response to poverty and homelessness. Um, And research that we did in another research project together um, with the Coalition on Homelessness and our colleagues Lisa Marie Alatori and Chris Herring shows that the policing of homelessness deepens poverty um, and that this policing actually makes women and trans people more vulnerable to violence. So um, if you could tell me more about the relationship between criminalization and housing deprivation. Yeah, I mean, what's happening is that we have a situation where the federal government caused the, ho- the homeless crisis by cutting HUD by 78%. And then, you know, that happened in the early 80s. And since then, a bunch of bad policy decisions have occurred that have made that worse. 
and as well as a lot of immoral inaction. And since then, you know, we've gotten into a situation where the municipalities um, basically turn to the police to manage the homeless population, to push them out of centers of commerce, to push them out of tourist areas, to try to decrease their visibility. And what ends up happening is that we spend a tremendous amount of resources on a police response. I mean, you know, we have thousands of responses every month by police who are paid a quarter million dollars each or highly trained in, you know, uh, use of weapons, et cetera. And are frankly an inappropriate response. And as that happens and continues to happen, uh, people are pushed away um, from areas that they've maybe developed some sense of community where they have people around that they can um, depend on to watch their stuff or keep them safe in well-lit areas and areas that maybe there's a 24-hour convenience store nearby or you know whatever the thing is for the person that works for them. Uh, into places that are dark. I mean, we had in that research project that you just referred to, Delara, we had um, several people in um, in uh, more deep interviews that we did, uh, women who talked about being pushed from an area that was well lit where they felt safe to uh, being pushed out of there by police and then ended up somewhere else where they ended up getting sexually assaulted. And so it's, it's, it's a real connection and it also, criminalization makes it harder to get out of homelessness because uh, much like evictions on your records, you know, you're on the public housing wait list for years on end. If you have a warrant because you got a ticket for sleeping that you couldn't pay, then once you get to the top of the list, they do a warrant check and they kick you off after waiting for years. So that's just one example, but it basically exasperates homelessness, not just with the waste, waste of resources that could be spent on housing people, um, but also that piece. And also, of course, the violence at the hands of police. So, you know, we have had several people who um, were homeless, people who um, who were killed by police uh, when police are responding. And, um, you know, the um, Jessica Williams, who got killed right before uh, Chief Sir got fired, it was kind of the event that spurred the firing of the San Francisco police chief, um, who she was homeless. Um, it was killed, you know, it was a really obvious bad situation uh, when she was in a car. Um, but we've had, you know, a number of other cases just like that where people are out on the streets and end up getting killed by the police because they're having a behavioral health crisis and the police respond and the person maybe is in um, crises and doesn't respond to commands and ends up getting killed. So, um you know, this is, so it hits on a bunch of different places. Yeah. Yeah, I moved here in 1997, and I'm, I'm still some people that are still either homeless or marginally housed, still to this day are living in a SRO with a sink to piss in, and it's just like hearing stories from people that have been living in a SRO, which is about the same size as a jail cell. Um, it's, that's still not like a good thing because I mean I just feel like it's uh, <clears throat> it's it's like uh, SRO to prison pipeline so we're gonna house you in SRO which is about the same size of jail cell so when you fuck up you'll feel comfortable being in a jail cell because that's the kind of area and space that you've been confined in it's really like SRO to prison pipeline like you know our to jail pipeline and a lot of people 
who have been chronically homeless in that city, specifically around the early 2000s, most people die when they get their place. It's just like they die within a year or two by the time they get housed because they've been so chronically beaten from the weather and the streets and the... Right, because right now you can't get housing until you've been homeless for 20 years or otherwise on the verge of death. So, I mean, that's what the... And so, it, you know, and they, they show, like, if being homeless, it ages you by 25 years. So your every element of your medical, you know, your heart disease, your diabetes, all of that. So as a 50-year-old woman, I present medically as a 75-year-old woman. 25 years is a hell of a lot of years to add to people's lives. And that's being done because we're forcing people to stay homeless. And I, I use that language forced deliberately because people don't have any other choices. People are not choosing to be out there. Obviously, they'd rather have a safe and decent place of their own, uh, that they can have a bed, they can sleep in every night in the warmth and all this stuff that they'd be able to avoid um, that door to lock. And uh, yet, our policymakers treat people as if they're out there by choice somehow, and uh, that gets themselves off the hook from, from doing anything. But I even think that the work that is being done on housing people, a lot of that money is coming from places that um, are basically giving the city and county money to prevent homelessness in Embarcadero and at the Moscone Center and the um, Salesforce, like up in that area. I think those are the main people that they're trying to house because if you look in the Tenderloin, it's just like if you're looking at, you don't have to look far to house homeless people. It's not like people like, like, like they got to search under a rock to find people that are homeless or without housing and house them. You don't have to do that. You just have to go in the Tenderloin and start there because that's where like there's a large number of people that are unhoused are at. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've, so they've, I mean, the Embarcadero, that's where the navigation center's going in. Part of that's because of the, um, because that's where there was availability of land. But, you know, like if we're talking about, um, because of the politics around that, then yes, absolutely, they end up prioritizing people based on political stuff. So like when the Super Bowl was happening, back then was when the first nav centers were going in. And at that point in time, Everybody was going to the mission because um, if you got into a nav center, you were guaranteed housing. And they were only housing people around the neighborhood of the nav center and the mission. And they did that for political reasons because they were trying to make those neighbors happy. But then once we were going to do this big Super Bowl party in San Francisco, all those people who had been promised spaces in the nav center suddenly got the shaft. And then they offered them all to the people in the Embarcadero area so that when people were coming into the city for the Super Bowl, they didn't have to witness poverty. And so I think that's, um, yeah, it's a really interesting point because it's, we, we don't have enough resources for everybody, absolutely not. But the way that they distributed can in no way be considered equitable because the politics falls into this so often. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel very strongly, if you house... If you house 10 black trans women, you can say you house 16 black trans women because it's highly likely those trans women are going to support another trans woman. I like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. They're not going to, if nothing else, they're going to like really like invite them in. Right, right, right. Support them and stuff like that. So that's the kind of thing that 
um, also forces people to um, be into homelessness is the living in the SROs, how they sort of kind of like don't allow you to, some of them don't allow you to have uh, so many overnight. Right. And um, that's another way that we used to house some of the trans mm -hmm. people is we'd be like, hey, if you let her stay with you for those 15 days, we'll... Give you a little money to yeah, offset we'll, your rent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to support them and supporting somebody else. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we would pay for them to stay in a hotel, why would we not pay one of the sisters for letting another sister stay with her for the X amount of days? You right, know right. I mean? Yeah. Yeah, and you maximize the housing. Yeah. yeah. Invest more in people and, and instead of buildings that don't want us there, you know, structures that don't really want us there, you know? Yeah, and it's like communities are being forced to come up with these creative strategies to support each other. Um, oh, and we've done it. Yeah. <laughs> we say abolitionists. You say you're abolitionist. Well, how's this trans woman? <laughs> yeah. This is what abolitionists look like. If you have a room come up in your house that's available, rent to a formerly incarcerated trans person, you know? Yeah, yeah. And when we think about the city, right, um, one of the participants in our needs assessment said something that I think really resonates with what you're saying um, about how communities have to do for themselves because they're left out of resources um, by the city. And she said, policies rarely include anything specific, specifically about or for the trans-Latina community. Trans-Latinas are invisible to policymakers. Why is it so important to center the ideas and the needs of trans women of color in housing justice organizing? in particular because we see a lot of housing initiatives in this city yeah i think that um one of the things that um one of the things that i spoke about ecs is just like their housing structures the way it is we've been very challenged in supporting trans people and gaining access and i once again i'll go back to the point where it's broken and all the shame that people have to experience it's like um it's a checklist of um what qualifies you it's uh um are you disabled um do you have mental health are you a substance user? Have you ever tried to commit suicide? And it's all these different questions that you have to fit to fit the criteria. And it's very challenging for a lot of black trans women to admit all these failures or all these things. Like they don't want to cop to be having mental health. They don't want to talk about their HIV status. Um, and they don't really want you to know that they are like chronically homeless. So they will say um, stuff like, even though they consistently have been homeless, when the question is, have you been homeless for any time over seven years? They will say no. And that's because they've slept on somebody's couch for two weeks. You know, it's because um, they found an abandoned building that they lived in for six months. And 
and they don't want to cop to all that stuff. And I was just like, I'm just, I was just like sitting there looking at them. And I've done an interview um, with them around filling out a housing application when that recent housing come out and they were not copying to a lot of things. And I'm like, why are you not? It's just that they don't. Like, it's a reality that sometimes people have to face. Yeah, and you're talking to a stranger. Right. I mean, that's the thing. So this is the coordinated, new coordinated, relatively new coordinated entry system yeah. where... For the biggest if, shelter provider in San Francisco. Well, it's... No, well, e, no, ECS controls the, the housing for all single adults mm -hmm. in the entire system. Mm -hmm. So it's not about the shelter, actually. The it's shelter is a totally system. separate, totally separate okay. inner process but Jeanette is talking about coordinated entry for the entire city of San Francisco yeah. so the way they do it is is that they give you points and if you get the highest points which is based on length of homelessness and answering yes to basically these questions then if you're at the highest point thing then you're on the track to housing if you're not on that highest point um, section which is basically called tier one then you're ch you you have no chance of getting housing. You can't you don't have a chance of yeah. getting housing until you reach tier one. So it's a problem, and part of the problem is I think in design is is that the city should trust the providers. Like really, it should be Janetta filling out the coordinated entry based on your experience with the person going through this stuff and having a conversation about it and working up to it and then if they're not if they're not willing to do it to be able to go back and update that information and kind of do it that way because we we have the same situation all the time I mean like it is not it is not scoring people appropriately because it is putting everyone with all these diverse people through one particular door that is a strange door to a lot of people and you know there's just like a lot of stigma with this stuff and people don't really want to talk to some stranger about this very very intensely personal information that in some cases they may be shared with one or two people their entire lives you know and then they're expected to do it to a stranger so it's it's pretty funky it's it's basically coordinated entry and you know it's this idea and it's happening across the country that somehow having a computer system is going to ensure more equity than a human being and so they remove the human from the factor but who is programming these computer systems it's of course usually some white guy who doesn't really know and the system the computer system you end up with is has even more biases than the human being who might be working on this stuff so it's it's uh hugely problematic and um yeah and even within the work i mean it's just that like we house we support people in getting into some type of stable housing situation but we also work with folks who um that are part of the tdijp reentry socioeconomic justice fellow program where people um coming out of jails or prison are homeless that are trans um, mainly black trans women but we work with all trans people but um that they work here 25 hours a week for leadership development training and to gain professional development and growth mm -hmm. to transition into other job opportunities that are homeless and it's it's almost impossible to work in that capacity with someone who is not housed because there's the constant you know people you expect people to be on time but 
life happens, you know, um, life just happens in ways when people are not housed that people don't always get a good rest. Yeah. You know, and um, it's just, it just, and that's, that's something that re- really triggered me. And I basically went over and I was just like, they were giving me a hard time trying to erase me and telling me there was nobody I could talk to. I'm like, today is the day that I'm not leaving until these two people are housed because they are on our payroll, they are our staff, and they are coming up, coming in late and falling asleep at work. And this is ridiculous. And if they don't get housed today, I will be here every day with these four trans people. And every day I will add more and more and more trans people. And I will sit in your office every day from 9 to 5. Yeah. And I hate the fact that I have to get ugly like that. You know what I'm saying? To make some demands. You know, and that's... I don't want to do that. And it kind of makes me out like being a bad person Mm -hmm. in the system of, you know, the nonprofit... uh, city and county stuff but it's just like sometimes they make you get ugly like we had to do the direct action on the shelter because everyday trans people are coming here telling me this telling me that you know sexually assaulted attacked um constantly being misgendered constantly and you you were around when we did the direct action on the shelter and we um basically made some demands and you know of course there was no oversight committee i know that y'all do some oversight stuff are y'all used to well we pushed for legislation to do the shelter monitoring committee mm-hmm. and so that is announced and unannounced visits at the shelter okay. um and we set it up so that it was dph doing the monitoring they have the ability to find mm-hmm. and it's helped a lot in a lot of situations but it's more like a lot easier when it's something like they don't have toilet paper or they're not properly covering the pillows or something, but staff treatment mm-hmm. is one of the areas that um, it's been really difficult to affect change because the nonprofits have their own personnel things and they are in charge of their own employees. And you, it's really hard to kind of like legally to superimpose on another corporation what how they should be holding their staff accountable. And so that part's been the biggest struggle, but it does bring to light what's going on. We also have the shelter advocates when people get, but that's just when people get kicked out of shelter. Oh, I've worked with some of the shelter advocates. Yeah, there. so then you then we have a hearing and we, we fought for that program. Ads. We kick some ass. Yeah, so they win, they win a lot of the hearings and stuff. But that's like you have a set of pro a set of policies, and then the person breaks the rules, and then they get kicked out, and then you're basically trying to hold them to carrying out their um, policies in a fair way. But if they have very unfair policies, um, again, they don't. Have, the shelter advocates don't have the ability to change those policies. Again, it's a very difficult situation because it's its own independent nonprofit with its own corporate structure. So, yeah. And you got to think about the Latino trans community who is um, like experience a lot like when they go to the shelter they experience a lot of language barriers not enough people that can communicate in Spanish and um, also the fear and anxiety people feel about um, about um, being undocumented and accessing you know opportunities in that way like that just leaves a huge concern and that's why so many people just 
I mean, I guess eventually you're beat down and mm -hmm. you, I know if I had to sleep on the street, I know I would be on some type of something. Give me something. Yeah. To, give me, at least give me a bottle of courage. Give me some alcohol. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know. so I can get some yeah. sleep tonight. Yeah. Otherwise, I'd have my eyes open all night. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and I think that's where a large part of substance use come from. Um, people without housing, it's just like if you're living on the streets at night, you have to have something mm -hmm. and not a sleeping pill either. Something that's gonna keep you up, or somebody just gonna something that's gonna just like distract your mind from your current situation. And it's just like, cause, and then you just get used to that cycle of having those like, traumatic experiences and you just learn to live with them, yeah. you know? And, and numbing them yeah. whatever way you know how because there's not care available. talking about about your advocacy um, and something I actually admire about both of you and both of your organizations is that you know when to kind of lobby and meet with people and you know be nice behind closed doors and you also know when to take it to the streets um, I think that you're both brilliant strategists who get things done while staying true to your core principles can you talk about how and when you decide to work within the system versus outside of the system? Like that protest where you forced um, the you know head staff from the largest shelter provider in the city to come out and meet with you um, and kind of engage with a list of demands. Um, so how can advocates decide when to lobby elected officials or others behind closed doors um, and when to engage in direct action? Yeah, so, I mean, I think uh, you, fundamentally, you need both an inside and an outside strategy. I mean, if you think about it, like, you know, if you have just an inside strategy, then that's just going to be about relationship building, and then you're constantly having to compromise um, and you can never get something big and bold done. Um, but if you have just an outside strategy and you're just protesting all the time, and let's say you're protesting for some kind of some kind of law, if you don't have then go and meet with the legislators in reviewing that law, they're going to respond to your protest maybe, pass a law that you didn't actually have any input on and totally misses the mark. And you can't really trust them to, to do it right. You have to be there you know, on them the entire time. So for us at the Coalition on Homelessness, I mean, I think we really make sure we never get personal. Um, we always make sure that it's backed up by a process in terms of that people know where we're coming from, that we're representing homeless folks, that we got lots of input from homeless people, and that it's, you know, we're representing a perspective and that there's no reason for them to take it personal. Now, they do because... A lot of people who are in office are really immature and um, ego-driven with these big shallow egos that are as deep as a puddle and are easily affected. Um, but, you know, as long as you're consistent and you don't get personal and you focus on the policy issues, um, 
and you are representative of a group, you're always going to be radical because you're representing the people who are impacted. Um, And, you know, I think it's about, you don't have to agree with me or disagree with me. It's, It's like... You, we're trying to get social change. We're not trying to win a popularity contest. So I don't really care if these policymakers hate me or have negative feelings about me. Um, that never enters into it. We are doing what's right. We're pushing for what's right. And we'll try everything until we win. And the thing that ends up winning in the end, honestly, is fortitude. Like, we do not give up. We keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing, and eventually those walls end up crumbling. Um, and because we last longer than they do, and that's how you—that's how you beat them out, you know. But you gotta have the—you gotta have the people power because they're not gonna listen to you when you go into their office otherwise. And eventually, you have to walk into their offices. So it's gotta be both. Um, it's very challenging for me because it's just like I'm going to meet with people who are not trans, mostly not African American, who has the closest thing in the homeless is their three, four day camping trip. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and, um, and, um, it's really hard for me to go in there and like, um, in some aspects make a plea to help people understand the disparities and the experiences of my community and to um, get them to wrap their mind around what does it mean to be like the last to be served in the world, this world of systemic oppression that uh, poor, low, no income people, black, trans, GNC, non-binary, GLBT experience discrimination, who has been given full permission by President Donald Trump. Well, I take that word back. Donald Trump, plain old Donald Trump, and Ben Carson, mm-hmm. extending an invitation to the world to discriminate against trans people, GLBT community. And it's just so disheartening that we have to live with the fact of knowing that the person who is supposed to be higher up is giving the rest of the world and the freedom and the liberty to discriminate and deny access to housing opportunity, employment opportunities, opportunity to serve in the military. I mean, <clears throat> and so sometimes going in there, you have to put on a face in order to advocate for the communities. And um, and you, I don't know, it's just, it's hard because Sometimes you just want to shake them and be like, no, for real. (laughs) You stay there. I have all these these fantasies like if we tied you up and forced you to experience this, would you change your mind? But, you know, uh, not necessarily because folks are driven, you know, it's, yeah. I'm just saying, you go stay in um, the Henry Hotel or the Hurley Hotel. You know, you go stay in there for a few. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, but I don't think with a lot of folks even that would work. Yeah. I think they would look around and be disparaging towards the people around them. Like, I, I just don't know that they would necessarily relate to people who... Yeah, because they know that's not their life and that's not their experience and it's never been their and the And if you come from the perspective of blaming people for their circumstances... You're going to look around and continue to blame people for their circumstances. You're going to look around and go, why would you live in a dump like this? 
Yeah. You know, and so it's just anyway. But you know, we 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 don't. I mean, ultimately, we don't give them a choice, right? Like we got to push them hard enough that they don't have a choice but to do what's right, yeah. mm-hmm. and that is. You know, that takes a lot of work and a lot of movement and, and making sure that our all of our people have the leadership skills and the, the, you know, I mean, it's a lot of what you're doing here, you know, in terms of allowing people uh, the opportunity to affect change. Yeah. And uh, they do a good, fucking good job when they're given the opportunity. Yeah. 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 And in a lot of ways, I know that, especially when you're dealing with policy and legislation and um, board of supervisors, and I know there's a lot of um, people without housing has been, like, supported and prepped and um, gained a better understanding of how to um, narrate their own stories around their experience with homelessness. And um, But sometimes I feel better knowing that other people are doing that work so that, um, so that um, community members that are not housed don't have to like see the lack of care in some of these people's faces or the lack of like they don't completely understand why you are homeless like you know and it's just like a lot of people just seem and people that work in HSS, HSA and HSH and I'm like I've been throughout this city having conversations talking about like trans women experience and people looking at me like looking at me like I'm a damn lie yeah there's a serious yeah there's it is it's rough it's rough because and it's rough when you you're in a meeting with people in power and people who are taking so much courage to and like to just stand up and it's, it's really hard to push for yourself you know and then they do it and then they then when they just get shot down you know, but, um, you know, there, there's there's little things, you know, sometimes it's numbers, yeah. so it's hard for them to single out and shoot down, sometimes it's, you know, but it's, um, but it is, I agree, it's, it can be very, very discouraging for folks, and, yeah. um, but ultimately, you know, we're, we're, we're kicking ass, and we're yeah. getting a lot of shit done. Yeah, so, a lot of the trans women that are um, sleeping in the alleyways in the Polk Street area report that they're being um, harassed with neighbors saying that they're too loud and they are coming after them, you know, having the conversations like, y'all need to shut the fuck up, y'all too loud. But in order for them to convey that, they so happen to have a tire iron or a mini bat or stuff like that. And um, um, one of the mm. girls said the police told them to move and um, how conveniently and accidentally, the next thing you know, they are getting wet by the fire holes, the fire Oh, department. by the Department yeah. of Public Works squirter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's those experiences that just makes me so angry and I just want to gouge somebody's eyes out for doing shit like that, you know? Um, it's just imagine you don't, you had a place to live, you got your rent because remember when the rent went up like skyrocketing yeah. like a lot of people and then um there was this lady sleeping on my street and the cops were like the cops were giving her a hard time but she was talking hella shit she was like look i just got displaced from my place i don't have no place to live you're trying to kick me off the streets these are my streets <laughs> i pay i pay taxes so <laughs> and she refused to leave and 
Yeah, she they yeah. It, it, she talked hella shit to him, but and they um she refused to leave. She was like, "You will not degrade me." You know, the city and county of San Francisco has already told me that I was not good enough for housing. Now you gonna run me off the fucking street? She was like, "Hell to the no." <laughs> I was like, "Yes, girl. Yes, girl." <laughs> yeah. Yes. I was having a barbecue in my backyard. I was like. Girl, when they get through, come to my barbecue. <laughs> yeah. So we see, I mean, we see a lot of people standing up. And we see a lot of um, organizing with clear targets. Many housing justice activists say we already know everything we need to know to end poverty and homelessness. Um, so why should we bother... Jenny, you mentioned like numbers and bringing those to policymakers or stories and evidence and bringing those to elected officials. Why should we bother doing research? I think that we just need to respond. We've, we have enough numbers, enough data, enough information to respond. And I feel like it's important that we respond with an urgency of a national disaster um, because um it's just the mental and emotional and psychological stuff that people experience from homelessness especially chronic homelessness and i just feel like um that um there's so many other experiences that we've had that we've responded so well to um particularly i will go back to um, public health issues and in the 80s when you know everybody was um, coming up with HIV and it was the white gay men and the Castro it's just like um, when white gay men were most impacted by HIV and AIDS that's when we responded I mean people quit their jobs and went to doing care for people and you know all these different things I think we should be responding in the same way with the um, crisis on homelessness. Yeah, because it is a crisis, right? And, um, you know, there's that quote, Jenny, that you um, say sometimes, power concedes nothing without a demand from Frederick Douglass. Yeah. talk about the demands that we can make at the local level. Um, we've seen local politicians here in San Francisco forcefully disavow federal policies of the Trump administration and Ben Carson's Department of Housing and Urban Development. For example, the mayor of San Francisco has repeatedly stated that the city opposes Carson's proposal to deny shelter to transgender women. Um, do you think the Trump administration's racist, anti-poor, and transphobic policies in a weird way open up a different type of opportunity for local organizing? Um, and what is the role of local advocacy um, here in San Francisco at a time when the federal government is working to undo the most basic human rights and protections for marginalized people? 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's been, I mean, in San Francisco, there's a lot of liberal folks who don't think about poverty and as something that can be changed by laws or that it's man-made and that uh, we are that we're able to kind of turn around this by the decisions in the that we're making and the priorities that we have and the, I think there's a somewhat of an awareness of wealth disparity. Um, I think Trump in general, I mean, is as much damage as he's doing and we'll never, we, we, I mean, Reagan did a lot of damage and we still haven't recovered from it. So this is a silver lining that's not justifying his existence at all. Yeah. But I do think that Trump makes some very clear lines in the sand that force people to think about what side they're on. And when he started going after homeless folks, it forces people to think about, mm-hmm. are they on Trump's side or are they not? And... It, I, and, it, and it makes them struggle, whereas they, you know, the, all this time have been, you know, maybe voting for criminalization of homeless people. Now they're like, ooh, maybe that's a bad thing because Trump wants it to happen, right? And so I do think it creates an opportunity. But I also think, you know, there there's an opportunity in Trump. There's an opportunity in, in gentrification. I mean, I've seen with San Franciscans, many San Franciscans for the first time seeing themselves in the faces of homeless people because they themselves are insecure, rental insecure, that before they didn't really think about it, but everybody's nervous now with all the real estate speculation. There are a lot of people are coming forward and fighting for homeless people and they have a lot more sympathy in there. You know, and I mean, when we did Prop C, for example, I mean, I think that was part of what was happening. I mean, we got like 700 volunteers to work on that campaign. We had, you know, we were supposed to get 9,000 signatures. We had to get 29,000 signatures. I mean, it was a very clear measure. It was tax the rich, house the poor. There wasn't any nuance to it. It was just like, do the real thing and, you know, and get it done. And so that was really helpful. But I think it really, uh, really pulled out a lot of people who... Um, who otherwise kind of thought of homeless people as other people, as people who had done something wrong or something wrong with them and didn't really relate to them, and and now they're relating to them. And I also think Trump kind of was a big wake-up call for a lot of people who realized, like, holy crap, i got to get socially and politically active. It was empathy that got him elected in a lot of ways, right? So it was, you know... um, yeah, and so it, it just, I, I, you know, so there, there is some stuff to that. Um, I have found it very interesting, and I'll just give an example. Like, Democracy Now! really didn't talk about homelessness, and we were on Democracy Now! for the first time. I've been on this job for 25 years. Never, They've never covered homelessness. Um, so it, it's just, you know, this is a huge national issue. Um, we have, uh, you know, in every city in the United States, um, uh, people in are overpaying for their rent. Um, there is a housing crisis everywhere. In San Francisco, it's more severe. We have much more severe wealth and much more higher um, rents and this really massive disparity that's so visible and so shocking when you walk down the streets because you have just severe destitution in the shadows of just gross opulence. Um, but it's everywhere in the country, and yet it barely gets talked about in the presidential debate. So maybe... This will also enter it in there because, let's face it, it was the federal government that created homelessness. The federal government can solve it. It's ironic that 
Trump is bringing up homelessness and making fun of San Francisco where he, when he single-handedly could solve the crises and easily just taking a chunk out of war spending and giving everyone housing choice vouchers in the country, for example. You know, reinvesting pre-1978 levels adjusted for inflation for the HUD budget. I mean, there's these things that they can do, and that's what makes it so ironic. Um, <clears throat> but I do think it's interesting because, you know, you have a mayor who in San Francisco who opposed Prop C, who's not willing to tax corporations, is not willing to tax the rich to house poor people, um, yet presents herself as a progressive. And suddenly she's in this awkward position where she's going to have to say, no, that's a really bad idea, Trump, and no, we don't criminalize here in San Francisco. But of course we're documenting that in fact she is. Right. Yeah, so people are being forced to, to choose sides. Um, I, I want to go back to the issue of you gave some very concrete solutions, right? We know exactly what needs to be done to end homelessness. Um, so I, I want to go back to this question of um, why should we bother doing research? A question that I often ask myself, like, yeah. should I really be here at this computer right now? Yeah. Um, or should I, you know, be doing something else? Right. Um, I mean, I, yeah, and I yeah. agree with Janetta, like, we got it. We know what the solutions are. We got to start fighting for them. Yeah. I do think, however, that, you know, if we, um, that... I view the struggle as, you know, a lot of times as a baseball game where people are playing their different roles. And when once we put it in, everything gets thrown in, we have a much stronger movement. And I do think it's really helpful because a lot of times for us, we'll be saying this stuff over and over again and people won't listen. But suddenly a researcher comes out and says the exact same thing and it's giving legitimacy to what we're fighting for. So, for example, for years we've been pushing around the um, pregnancy policy for homeless women and um, and um, pregnant people. And basically, you know, we just were hitting our head against the wall on it. And then there's the project in UCSF that's focusing on African-American um, uh, pregnant people, specifically looking at the impact of housing on the outcomes of the pregnancy and had these really startling findings about preterm birth and about how, you know, how much disparity there was in healthy births um, on race, but also on housing status. And so that, I think, we had been saying this for years and not gotten anywhere, and finally we got the policy changed. And I don't think that that alone did it. I think it was, it basically added some spice to the soup pot, and we were able to really um, kind of, you know, feed the social change with that in a way that we hadn't been able to before. And so, you know, so I don't mind that. But I also think when we're doing research, it should be an opportunity to redistribute university wealth. Yeah. And so, you know, or wherever the money's coming from, because I think, we, you know, we, you know, we want to center the voices of people who are giving their, they are content experts. Talking to homeless people, and they are content experts on homelessness, and they are the biggest experts of all, and they should be paid for that expertise. And so, and that I think is what we've been doing with our research at the Coalition on Homelessness. We're paying people to be participants in surveys. We're paying people to go out and proctor those surveys. We're doing that, and that that we end up with a much more high quality 
end result um, because people are willing to share what they otherwise wouldn't. Um, we're redistributing some resources to people who don't have access to traditional job markets at this point in their life. So, um, so there's kind of a win-win there. So, I, I, you know, I don't think that we can study our way out of homelessness, but I think it could buffer our um, our way out. It can it can help us move us down the road. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of feel like here at TGIJT, especially working with Black trans women and trans people coming out of jails and prison and going to all these different HSA, HSH meetings and meeting with DAS and like having all these conversations around homeless black trans women formerly incarcerated eviction on the record like trying to figure out how can we develop some structure into this um sometimes it could be very emotionally draining <clears throat> and i sometimes i feel like i hate investing my time in those systems <laughs> because they're so violent and i just uh Sometimes it's just heartbreaking to sit there and look at people that don't really understand or don't care or not moved in the way that. And so that's kind of why I try to invest more in the individuals because just knowing that whatever time you have to keep somebody safe on the inside, um, um, it just feels more better to try to invest more in the people and it's just like and it's disheartening because you know there's hundreds and thousands of people that are out there homeless but if you could just get one person inside you feel like you're still taking a step towards right right you know solving a crisis yeah solving a crisis yeah you know and um yeah and investing more in people than the systems that we experience and like you're creating opportunities for people without housing you know an opportunity to um be involved and also you know supporting them and generating some type of um income to sustain themselves um yeah i mean i kind of feel like at the coalition i mean kind of going back to the role thing you know it's it's uh a lot of that like within our organization, a lot of people have that same feeling. It's just like, why are we meeting with these people? Like, they're not listening. Mm -hmm. It goes back to the role thing. Like, we have to. Like, they have to hear from us yeah. or things would be so yeah. much worse. Yeah. Yeah. And so just appreciating all, like, the different roles that people are playing yeah. and knowing that some people, that's just not going to be the right <laughs> space for them. Yeah. Honoring that. Yeah. Not tripping on it. Not forcing them into it. But then other people, you know, I'm, to I'm, 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 you know, even though I get super, super aggravated, um, I don't have, you know, lived experience with homelessness mm -hmm. in terms of it doesn't hit me in a personal way. So I'm able to kind of like keep pushing them, keep pushing them, getting them really pissed and not having as much. I mean, I, I have a lot of personal involvement in it just because I'm committed to the issue, but it doesn't, it's not going to affect me in the same way. It's not going to necessarily re-trigger a trauma or something yeah. Yeah. you know and so it's it's kind of different so I think I think you know but but I really I really think that you know once we put it all together everyone has these really important roles to play yeah. and we and we make change by making sure that everyone um everyone's strengths are honored and you know really kind of pushed out there and 
Yeah, because it's just there's so much work to do um, to affect change. I mean, and we all have to do it, come at it from a bunch of different ways in order for it to work. There's just not one way. Like, it takes all these different parts. Yeah. So I think that's part of also just, like, being, you know, being good allies to each other and supporting each other's um, roles and not, like, tearing each other down. And I think... Um, and not saying like, oh, it has to be done this way because this is the way we do it, but recognizing there's like different ways to do stuff and that each has its value and in the end we, we end up getting there. Yeah. And I, I think it's great that people that have never experienced homelessness doing advocacy work because sometimes we are so, um, we've had so many intrusive memories when the conversation of homelessness comes up. I mean, I'm sure that when homelessness comes up, people could think of many times that they've been in these dangerous situations or remembering mm-hmm. what it's like to sleep in so much discomfort. I mean, I was one mad. Ooh, I was so mad. Uh, was it last year or this year when it rained? It rained for like almost two months. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was so mad. I was so mad. And we had that building over at 234 Eddy Street when St. James had moved out. And we had that whole building. Oh, I was so mad. But they would have kicked us out because I was going to call my staff and be like, who wants to work with me tonight? We're going to open this motherfucker up for a drop in. Yeah. Who wants to work with me tonight? Yeah. We're going to open this motherfucker up. Fuck them. You know, because... It was just so painful and hurtful to have that space and to, like, not be able to have people come inside out of the rain. Mm -hmm. But um, we would have gotten kicked out if we would have got caught. (laughs) And, um, yeah, and we got to think about how how we're going to have more people open up their spaces at night during this Mm -hmm. rainy season because... uh, and even during this winter time, I mean, I don't know what the landlord would say around here, but we will open this place up. I'm just scared in the morning time when the landlord comes. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Oops, that was a conspiracy plot. I'm just kidding. So, um, I think we are about um, getting close to out of time. But um, I want to thank both of you. Um, We've talked about kind of ways that people who haven't personally experienced homelessness or incarceration can support. We've talked about the importance of the leadership um, of people who have had those direct experiences. Um, And so I want to thank Janetta Johnson of the Transgender, Gender Variant and Intersex Justice Project and Jennifer Friedenbach of the San Francisco Coalition on Homelessness. Um, Thanks for inspiring your audience with your dedication to ending criminalization and poverty. We'd also like to thank the Relational Poverty Network for producing this podcast series and making a home for critical research and policy advocacy.